Hello and welcome to Green Planet Blue Planet podcast, highlighting artists, teachers, authors, and philanthropists who are committed to planetary purpose, or in other words, a holistic vision for planet Earth. My name is Julian Guderlei, and in today's episode, I'm hosting an interview with Michael Sean Conaway. Michael Sean is the CEO and director of StoryWorks, a social impact creative agency. His mission is to liberate greatness in people and organizations to redesign our failing systems and create an anti-fragile, anti-rival world, one that works for all. His work is in strategy, storytelling, and branding for leading-edge companies building solutions for a thriving future. In his most recent film project, We Rise Up, director Michael Sean explores how we can redesign success at the personal, collective, and universal levels to create a thriving future for humanity. And so with these words, welcome to the show, Michael Sean Conaway. Yeah, thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm excited. We, we share a lot of the same passion topics and you just produced an incredible movie that I can't wait to watch. All the trailers are um, really, really uh, impressive. Um, so so what, what led you to start the storytelling into a movie format? Yeah, um, you know, the, the, the work we've been doing since about the late, late 2000s, 2008 or nine, was really been with social ventures and, and uh, personal growth and development companies, any company that we felt was trying to do something good for the people or good for the planet. And uh, we used our, our kind of ninja skills that we honed doing television commercials and kind of traditional marketing and advertising um, to, to, to try to use what we have in our gifts to, to make a positive difference. And the more I got into things, the more I realized that um, nobody really has a holistic view of things. They, they are trying to either deal with something, little thing they care about or make an improvement here or there, or uh, uh, you know, they, they're, they're focused on their for-profit side of their, their business, and so they have to be really careful about what they do on the for-benefit side, and um, it, it just felt constraining to me. I'm like, wow, we really need to take gloves off here. <laughs> you know, we're, we're in a situation, especially with the climate, where action is required now. It's not required a Absolutely. generation or two from now. And so how do we actually start to, to make some of these systemic changes? Um, and then the kind of the first piece that, of that onion is like, oh, well, in order to make systemic changes, we've got to let the world know we need systemic changes and that life could be uh, different than we experience it. It doesn't have to be the way it is now. And, um, you know, uh, quite to the chagrin of, of, of many, uh, you know, kind of uh, enthusiasts over capitalism and the American system, it's not the only way to do it. There's many other ways that we can invent things. And then ultimately, the things that we have now were really de designed and built upon intellectual ideas that were, were really 250 years old. Um, you know, so we have, we have horse and buggy democracy and we have economics based upon large distances and uh, a seemingly endless amount of material resources. And none of them, and we don't have, we have, we have internet, uh, mobile, hyper-connected civilization now, certainly not ho horse and buggy distances. Uh, and we have, um, we have economics that, that, can very, very, very quickly scale to extract more resources than we, we have. And uh, you know, high, high extraction of resources creates damage to the environment. Uh, then, then we throw away most of the stuff we extract and now we have net, net, net accumulation toxicity in our dumps and our oceans, et cetera, et cetera. And 
uh, you know, all the while we're we're kind of rowing our boat, our you know, and I, I sometimes think it's the capitalism boat. We're rowing it ever quicker towards the edge of doom. You know, like how fast can we actually uh, mess up the planet and, and our lives so badly? <laughs> yeah, and and and, and capitalism is a uh, is a growth engine. I mean, especially the way we implemented it, and and uh, it served us well. I mean, we've made some amazing uh, leaps. Humanity has, um, but the problem with growth engines is that that when if they're growing at exponential rates and they consume at exponential rates. So we just looked at, well, how do we get, how do we get a hold of this whole thing? Like, like if the story is, is, you know, is as big as it is, how do we actually start getting people to see or think of or understand all of that to be able to be something other than paralyzed about it? And so, uh, yeah, we, we we rise up was born out of that like where do we start we thought well we got to start where so people are powerful so powerful because really the storytelling in itself right is um very one-sided and the education is very one-sided so most people are just continuously in the same loop until you re-educate them with just a different perspective of asking questions in, about our cultural uh, paradigms and and we've, we're a global culture now right so it, it things truly changed fascinating um yeah, yeah, and I, like you say, we're we're global, and and we do we have like this limited set of of information, uh, and then we have this kind of in America at least, and and you know really on the the rest of the world, this kind of nationalistic movements or um, protectionist movements versus liberal movements versus uh, you know highly hypercapital movements, um, but they're all really in a small set of 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 space. It's not like actually there's a wide set of thinking represented in those. Actually, it's a really small narrow set of thinking. Um, and then most people don't see it. Um, they don't see that that they're trapped in a very very narrow set of of mimetic structures. And so storytelling is the best way to kind of get people to say, "Oh wow, there is another way to think about things." And oh wow, we actually could do things many different ways. Uh, and maybe we should be doing them many different ways instead of one way or another. And and yeah, so uh, you know, our our mission has really been to, to kind of create that on ramp of thinking or on ramp of experience for people in the films we're creating, uh, and then ultimately be able to envision uh, a future that's discontinuous from from the state we have now. That's a leap in in wild proportions. Um, you know, if you think about the founding of the United States, and not only that, but all the democratic. Uh, and, and capitalist movements, you know, going from feudal systems uh, and going from, uh, you know, uh, church or wealthy landowners owning everything or kings and queens owning everything to, you know, private property and to democracy was a, a huge leap. It was massive. But the leap we're talking about taking next, I think, is even greater than that. Um, at least it's needed to be greater than that if we're going to avoid the existential danger. Absolutely. And it will have to be quite a bit different than in the past, right? I, I sometimes, um, I, I like the, I think Daniel Pinchbeck uh, was quoted to say that, and I recently had him on the show, it, like revolution is an outdated concept. What we need is a yeah. metamorphosis, right? And yeah. the metamorphosis in the past, it was usually establishment and then the counter, the revolution to the establishment. But truly, we kind of need both of those to meet at this point. And um, you kind of have a hard time expecting an establishment to change when things are working in their favor to continue an exclusivity that of, of rights, of power, of money, of whatever it may be. And so the education and the storytelling of broader masses, I think, um, yeah, it's, it's so vital. And I'm so fascinated with that because this is basically also how this podcast came to be, right? It's just right. this, this notion, like we need to tell more stories around 
this uh, quotation marks here, like this new earth we're wanting to build because the earth itself will be the same, but our consciousness will continue to upgrade and uplevel and expand. Yeah, great. You just mentioned a couple of things there that are great because, you know, you're right. If we, if we, like, we don't see that, that, that establishment and anti-establishment are actually all part of the same thing. Um, we don't see that, that, that we just want to reinvent hierarchies and, and the anti-establishment is going to become the next establishment. And that old cycle um, is, is really not going to get us there. Um, it's, it turns too slowly um, and it's not bold enough. Um, you know, if, if we were to go and, and interview the, the lowest 10% of, of, of wealth earners in the, in the world and talk to them about how, would, how would, they, would they really care who controlled the resources if they didn't get a share, a share of them, if they were still the poorest people on the planet. And for them, it just, it's nonsense. It's nonsense yeah, that, the, that the 1% fights over who controls the 1%. And, uh, you know, we, we, you know, like we have to get to equal access to resources for humans on the planet. Yeah, and that's you. not, that is not a, uh, that is not a us and them. It's a, it's a, a we statement and it requires, it, it, I think it requires a courage um, you know, courage to let go of, of, of that disparity. Um, as, and, and, you know, Daniel Schmachtenberger says a lot that, you know, we, we, and, and for that matter, um, Buckman is fuller, you know, like we actually have the resources to take care of everybody. We just choose not to. And we, we have this hierarchical fear that, that, um, you know, that if I am not dominating and succeeding in this capitalistic paradigm, then I'm failing and falling and I'm going to starve to death. Well, in a way, we, we look around at that, that seems true. You know, there are people that really don't have and that they really do starve and, and wow, we don't want to be one of those. And so maybe we should strive, we think. But it's all inside of the same paradigm versus saying, hey, wait, let's just stop a minute, time out, like everybody set down their toys for a minute and let's, let's talk about what, you know, what would an equitable distribution of, of, of resources look like. And as it turns out, you know, we have such mass accumulation, you know, to have, have people having, you know, tens of billions of dollars of wealth that they can't even do anything with, that they, you know, that, that, that becomes trapped wealth that actually doesn't flow and grow anything is just, it's ludicrous, but we can't see that inside of things. And so when we, when we started, we rise up, that was where we started. It's like, what is, what does success look like? Like, I, like it, what would it, what does it mean for me to be successful? Does it mean get a bunch of stuff, like a big, big bunch of stuff, like big, big bunch of stuff and a big house to put it in and lots of cars and lots of land? And if I could get a lot, then maybe two or three generations from now, my family would still have a bunch of stuff. Um, and and you, you look at that and it, it just it's so toxic. You know, you see generations later that that, you know, they, they, have, they have this kind of they feel robbed by the, the wealth that's been left to them more than than they feel taken care of by it a lot of, um, you know, uh, of guilt over where that wealth came from. So that's not it. And then if you're a self-made person, you know, like we, Moby was in the film and talked about, you know, like I, I thought when I got, you know, rich and successful and famous, everything was going to be great. And he's like, it wasn't, it was worse. You know, like I was less happy when wow. I achieved all those things. And so if we have a success model that, that bankrupts the planet, that, that is, is so off base as far as what's personally fulfilling, then, then what could be a new success model? And so we rise up that the first third of the movie really looks at shifting from a, a, a model of consumption to a model of contribution. What if success was measured on how much you contributed to the world? And then what, how would you actually go about contributing? Well, you do that by figuring out what your gifts are and what your purpose is and put them to work where they're most needed. Not doesn't have to be big and grand. You don't have to 
save the world or feed all the starving people, but giving your gifts, whatever they are, in a way that is of service actually is a, a great model of success. You say, wow, if that gets out of control, everybody's going to be giving to everybody else, and what's going to happen? Well, all of a sudden, all the problems are going to be taken care of, all the people will be taken care of if we actually did that. Uh, and then we spun out from individual success to looking at collective success and what does it look like for us in groups to come together uh, with this contribution mindset. And there's some, some good, good models now with social ventures who are making, you know, uh, making a good profits, but also doing good in the world. And I think some emerging models right now are, we're beginning to look at what is the relationship between my livelihood and my collective livelihood and the world and, and how should we how, how should it be in right proportion you know if you look at a natural ecosystem like the rainforest you know the waste of any organism is the food for another one everything's in right relationship that that things fit together in these systems and patterns well are human beings smart enough to invent ourselves like that can we actually fit in such a way that we actually have a net positive impact when we're when we're in the in the environment i i think absolutely so i mean That's such such an exciting question right there, right? Because if you look at what is right now and basing it in reality, we have so this 1% kind of phenomena, the separation kind of consciousness instead of the contribution or contributionism. So we're also talking about a transition from a point A to a point B. And so answering the question, I guess we are smart enough. And the question becomes like, how are we, what does it take to transition? What does it take to kind of, you know, take apart the current ways of thinking and, and establishing new ways of thinking that allow for that on-ramp, that allow for that next, um, yeah, that next society system or this cultural system, you know? Yeah, and, 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 that, and the possibility that that system may not even be a system. It may be a, a collection of loosely integrated experiments or loosely integrated um, uh, different things. You know, I think we, we have fallen for the monolithic as a human beings. We, we, we love the empire. We love the, you know, the, the, the big sweeps of, of monolithic uh, lawmaking and history. Um, but, you know, if you look, at, if you look at, at nature, you know, conifer forests are not standing in the Amazon rain basin. They're not. They're in their own climate, in their own space. Well, what does that mean for human beings? Well, it, it might mean that, hey, I want to be part of a, I, I actually want to own nothing. I just want to have a good place to sleep in three dozen cities around the world and, and, and projects to work on. I don't care about income or maybe that, Hey, I actually want to make a thing, but I want to be with other people that make those kinds of things. Well, who's, why would, why would the rules for me who doesn't want to own anything and somebody wants to make, make a thing, why would they need to be um, the same? There needs to be interfaces between uh, you know, these smaller groups and systems, you know, ways of, of interacting healthily. But I, I really think that, that our, the solution in the way the future may look, may look very, very small. Um, you know, the, it may be actually many, many small solutions because we know like from entrepreneurship that, that once a company gets really, really big, all it can do is swallow up other companies to be innovative. So we have this system where we create a bunch of, of startups and they get some capital and they innovate on ideas and then these big companies come eat them up later. Or if they're really lucky, they become a, a big company themselves. But it's always in this, this notion that bigger is better. Well, if small, smallness happens at, uh, at it, it, I mean, if in, it, um, 
innovation happens at small levels, small group levels. Uh, sometimes we talk about the Dunbar number being 150 people. That's that's the number of people you can know and, and meaningfully hold relationships. Well, well, what if we're, what if the future of eight billion people is in 150 person? groups and collectives with all different kinds of rules and ways of interacting. And what if that was something that was um, kind of interacting naturally? I mean, I think that's, that's something for us to look forward to versus saying, hey, Michael, Sean, are you going to invent the next, next monolithic system that's going to take care of all the planet and figure out all the, the, you know, the ways that we're going to interact? I place my bet the on- The classic question yeah, from yeah, the I'd old be, consciousness, right? It's like, where's, right. what's the silver bullet solution? And can you make it? I might even pay you a billion dollars for it. That's right. That's <laughs> right. And, and, and I, I, I certainly, from, from being in this conversation with many, many smart people, it's like, we, don't, we, we are smart enough to figure out all these things, but, but we're not smart enough to figure them all out at the same time. Anytime you start to solve one problem, it starts messing up other systems. And so you have these cascading uh, unintended consequences. The only way that we can actually innovate at the speed which, which we need to is for, for experimentation and lots of people trying different things. Um, and then, and then, then quite contrary to human behavior heretofore is to, to, to stop this incessant um, desire to say that what I'm doing is the best way to do things and it's best for all human beings. To say that this is good for me and the people that actually want to do this thing and maybe something else is good for other people. And I'm not talking about uh, moral relativism here. I'm not saying that anything goes, create, creates the future of humanity. I am saying though that in order for us to solve these really, really big uh, cultural problems, uh, like for example, you know, how do we move from uh, win-lose uh, game dynamics to win-win game dynamics. You know, how do you, I mean, like we've not been raised in a truly win-win or, or omni-considerate where even the planet's being given a seat at a table. We've not been raised in that environment. So none of us are super well suited to, to doing it individually, but we could all come up with an experiment. Hey, why don't you and I get together and we'll experiment with this thing where we actually take off the table that one of us is going to do better than the other of us in, in exchange. Let's just take that off the table and, and work really diligently. Just try to, to imagine that for two communities or collections of people or a group of people. And I think at those smaller levels, we can figure that out. Now, how that translates is that if we have great information architecture, we can share our wins with everybody else. Hey, look, we did this over here and it worked really, really well. Take it and, and use that. The other piece of that that fits right with that is intellectual property. Like how can we how can we live how can we solve the world's problems if if every time one of us comes up with a great solution we own it, and now nobody else can have part of that solution? It's like what is our gift to humanity if if we're charging entrance for it? So uh, how do the we? The interesting get part about that what you what you're mentioning with with both those pieces is that we already have incoming timelines, incoming reality timelines where these constructs are getting a little bit um, less dense, right? So a lot of people who invent. New, new things want to own their, their, uh, their, their rights to it, but some people don't. And like Tesla, for example, that took them a few years, but then they started saying, this is actually public good to a certain degree, right? Yeah. We are at a time on the planet, which um, a lot of people are unfortunately not aware of, but right now we're about seven, or maybe eight billion people and half of the planet's population is 28 and younger, yeah. which means we, we're at a time on the planet where half of the world's population grew up with the internet and space travel as a, a normal thing in our consciousness. So yeah. we're so far beyond the uh, horse carriage and kind of buggy metaphor from earlier. Um, and then these people, you know, me included, I'm 31 at this point, you know, we, we're longing for systems or 
post-system world um, it, for it to reflect the global way we feel interconnected. Yeah. Yeah, great. I mean, and, and, and the youth have less to lose. I mean, that's just, that's the way it goes over and over again. You know, I think Timothy Leary said it, you know, that don't, don't trust anyone over 30. I'm over 30, so don't trust me. But, you know, like, like really make your own thing, you know, make, figure out what part of that is. And that's a big part of We Rise Up is like, what is yours to do? What is your thing to solve? You know, like, and what are your, what do you, who are your people that are going to do that with you? Uh, figure that out and get started. I mean, it's, it's really, um, you know, I think the, the, the model or the notion that we used to have of like, oh, I'm going to make money that I'm going to do good. That's out now. Now make money and do good is like good, but even better is like, just figure out what it is you're here to do and, and figure out how to, to, to magnetize um, the, the resources to do that, the talent to redo that. And because we have such mobility, you know, especially in the, the Western world, we have such mobility, actually Mobility all over across the world. I mean, you see so many great engineers from different countries and, and idea uh, people moving. Now we need we need kind of cultural agents as well that are going to actually help us to 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 you know bring in some of the new cultural elements of that. So yeah, um, and then our film We Rise Up ends up with looking at universal success and evolution waking up to itself and or uh, self organizing universe is one of the principles we really believe in that that if you're doing your thing and and kind of solving the problems you're out here to solve and reinventing culture and society that, that you just, if you just trust that the self-organizing principles are going on, then nobody has to figure it all out. It just have, we just have to let it kind of grow up together. Um, and then, and then we get that collective intelligence when we're all doing, uh, you know, kind of our highest good and our highest work. And then we're trusting that everybody else is doing that. Then we have this multiplicative effect. And that's, that's different than, than, uh, than uh, exponential, right? That's to the third or the fourth or the hundredth power versus the, you know, the, the power of two. We actually get, um, we get this massive rising up of, of value and recreation for humanity. So beautiful how you're eloquently putting this. And I think there's a few things I'd love to touch on before yeah. we kind of go into um, how we rise up as a movie, but there's also a sequence and certain series that come with it. Um, so I, one of them is trust and trust is a main topic in all of my episodes. So mm. um, it just comes up over and over again. And the other one is cultural, um, almost like, you know, ambassadors or cultural narratives and, and a new cultural pioneers. And um, for you, for you listening, you, you know that about me at this point, like I've, I've been, I've been around the world since, since I'm a teenager and, you know, I'm, I started in, in, in Paraguay as a 15-year-old, Michael Sean, and it, it, it just took me everywhere. Mm. I couldn't stop. I got addicted to it. I turned a polyglot before I was 20. I spoke five languages right away. And not because I had this desire to show off with my skills, but simply because it was useful to connect with other humans. And I was privileged enough to get that exposure to, uh, from life, right? And so it, it made me realize things about culture that other people can't really see or pick up on, which is how you know, linear some cultures are, and then how globally we have Americanized, which I think everybody has, has kind of taken account of at this point. But it, it made this notion very alive in me, and you just touched on it. In some way, shape, or form, we require cultural role models. Mm -hmm. And out of some reason, the role models so far have been celebrities and sports stars and athletes and people in the movies. And while I don't think that's completely wrong, I think it's just very limited. And it's a very, it's a very singular way of spreading culture. And so how did that, that topic of cultural ambassadors or cultural stewards come up in, in your movies and your work? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, I think for me, I kind of go back to um, this, this idea of memetics and, you know, memetics is, is it's not really a science. I think it's much more like a way to look at 
what happens in the world. And Mimetic says that, look, there's these certain ideas that have viral qualities to them. Uh, you know, capitalism and American, American, uh, American capitalism especially uh, is a, a very virulent uh, meme. You know, it, it spreads everywhere. Um, and it, there's some reasons why. One is it's a very fast moving um, structure. We actually can move capital and create, create things very quickly with it. It's a, it's a, it's kind of the most most and best way to grow something quickly and 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 people get personal wealth out of it which means that they get out of you know kind of a survival mentality so it's got a really lot of great things and you might even say the memetics of kind of the american version of that might come from native americans and and some of the things that that the europeans found when they came here all these things are great and you know like we need new ideas i mean that's just all there is to it i mean like that understanding that that ideas are viral like that is great um, and we don't want to sit around waiting for the virus that's going to save us all. Uh, so we really have to start getting new things into culture. New things start with new experiences, doing new things, one, and then new, two, telling stories about the things that we're doing that carry the value of those experiences. Um, so you go to Paraguay and you have experience of another culture. That's great, but it's even better when you tell a story about it. And you let's say, well, when I was in Paraguay, they, they saw things differently. And what I learned about my culture is, and then you share that story with somebody, and then it has a chance to spread. Now, some stories, you may have to go to Paraguay, Paraguay to get it for yourself, and, and that's great. But we really want to find the stories where, um, where they're large enough that they don't require specific experience to understand them, and they're large enough to generate new kinds of behaviors. So, uh, you know, the work we're working on right now is a, a series called The Futurist. It, it goes forward 75 years in the future. We look at the future of cities and food and transportation and fuel and the human body and future of the, you know, the biosphere and future of humans in space. And with each one of these, what we're looking to do is not predict the future. We're looking to tell stories about the future in which we've solved some of these big systemic problems. And so we can get a glimpse of what would it look like for us to have a world that worked for everybody. What would it look like if humans were a net positive to the planet every year? Well, we don't really know. We can make some declarations this would be good, but we don't want to know what it looks like. So a lot of the work that I'm trying to do right now is give us a picture, a vivid vision of a viable future for humanity. How, if we can have those visions, then we can work towards them. And, and I, I mean, I grew up, I'm, I'm a little older than you, but I grew up, uh, I, I was really little when Star Trek first came on TV and um, first space, space generation, you know, I was obsessed with space stuff. But if you look at the very first 1969 Star Trek, you you go on the, the, the deck of the Starship Enterprise and it's interracial. There's a black woman who's in control of communications and there's a Russian sitting next to an American and there's a Scott and there's, like, there's, there's, and there's a guy who's an alien who's pointy, pointy ears and they're all working together. And, and they didn't stop and say, hey, time out everybody. I want everybody to notice that we're showing a new cultural paradigm called integration and diversity. They just did integration and diversity like it was normal, natural. And, and normalizing something that like that is powerful. And I don't know if you know a little other anecdote, but um, uh, Star Trek was the first interracial kiss on TV. Uh, oh, you think wow, about I it like- I did like, not like, know that. That's, is, that's is a that, massive like, leap forward, yeah. Is this science fiction or is this, a, is this a cultural, you know, like a culture change agent co concept? And I think so, it was yeah. very much a culture change agent concept. It just happened to be in space. And so we're looking at that. Like, how do we show things as being normal and natural? How do we show what, what would uh, a generation of kids that never grew up with competition as a serious thing? Like they could compete to play, but not compete where 
their friend Joey's going to go to a worse college than them and they're going to get to go to a better college and then they're going to make rich and be rich and Joey's going to have a, a job at a grocery store or something like that. It's like, oh, my life is stakes competition. What if you had a generation that grew up like that? Well, we need to imagine that. We need to see how they would be different from us. And when we begin to see how they're different from us and see what their cities are like and see, oh my goodness, they have a city without any roads. Why are there no roads in this city? Oh, because actually transformation, transportation is not something that's an individual thing. It's a collective thing. So we don't have to Ooh, give up 30% yeah, of the square reason. footage of our cities to roads because so we can all own a car that sits in a garage, you know, 22 hours in a day. Um, and, and so being able to look forward and imagine a world, not like the world, like a predictive thing, but like Star Trek did, like imagine a world that you might want to be part of. A possible to, future, right? Yeah, I mean, possible. Albert Einstein, I think, was quoted to say, imagination is the precursor of the future. And so without that precursor, we don't know where we're even, even headed. Yeah, so that's what that that's our, our work. You know, the, our next group of films is called The Future of Humanity. We're going to do that, uh, that, that kind of factual docu-series and we're going to do a, a series of about the people live in that time and then we'll do a feature film of that and just the idea is to keep getting these ideas out and generate and generate and generate and generate in the future um, you know we can talk about you know like a lot of my friends are involved in the 2030 goals for SDGs and how we're going to get there and I think that's that's really really great um, but maybe maybe a different kind of storytelling it's a little bit more of of information kind of storytelling I, I'm really interested in this inspirational kind. Like, how can we inspire a better humanity? How can we, how can we inspire ourselves for that matter to just, like, figure it out? Um, the well, you and I, you and I drank from the same Kool-Aid because you know <laughs> I, I've I've been in the World Economic Forum circle for a few years, the Global Shapers, and I'm definitely a fan of the SDGs. They're the Global Goals. They're important. That's um, great. And yeah, yeah it's the to-do list of the world for the next probably 10 to 15, maybe 20 to 25 years. Um, without being too sure about those timelines, of course. Um, but that's just it. And then what, right? And so without the imagination of the precursors of the future, like we don't, we don't even know where we're steering and, and basically we're letting mass media control our imagination center, our third eye center to, to show us again and again and again, just the cleansing of our subconscious from, from war movies to other history movies yeah. to, to future prediction with more war in them, which is, yeah. No, no, no. We love really doing our it, yeah. storytellers right now want to tell dystopia over and over again. And if you believe that generating a vision of the future creates a future, then our storytellers by and large today want the end of humanity to be as messy and ugly and depressing as humanly possible. Of course, there'll be a few heroes that survive. Right. But that's like, is that really what we're living into? And you, and what you said is really interesting. Like the, the SGDs are a great roadmap and they really help us. Like if we can, like we can get to 2030, but the problem is, is that, we could actually achieve the SDGs by just putting, you know, band-aids and bubble gum in a broken system and limping it along to being just good enough not to kill ourselves, right? Is that what we're aspiring to? Is just good enough that that we don't kill ourselves, that we have a little bit less uh, financial inequality, that we have a little bit less human trafficking, that maybe we we stop global warming at the point where most people are uncomfortable, but some people are kind of like, it, it just it just like if you think about it, it's like. If you were if you're on a cooking show and they gave you a bunch of really shitty ingredients and told you to cook something good, you'd like, I'm going to do my best with these really shitty ingredients. Maybe I can get a roadmap called a recipe that'll get me to something that's edible. But wait a second. Why don't we just stop and say, look, yeah, we could reshuffle this deck a bunch of ways, but maybe we should throw the game out and start again. And, and that, that, you know, I don't think that that's practical. I'm not saying that, you know, 8 billion people could just say time out and, and you know, stop going to work for 
four months or a year or two years while we figure out some things, you know, like maybe we all plant some gardens and just take a meditative break. Um, I'm sure those, I'm sure that if we could find a way to make that work, it would be very interesting experiment, but rather I'm saying that enough of us need to start considering that the very basic assumptions at the root of everything we do as human beings are not going to work going forward unless we want to be setting out another 10 and 15 year timeline of more band-aids and chewing gum to keep us limping along. Eventually we have to redesign. Eventually we have to figure out how to, to remove inequality. Eventually we have to stop extracting resources from this environment and other planetary environments. I think one people, people want to say, well, we'll just use up earth and move out somewhere else. Well, bullshit. I mean, like Mars is a, really harsh place to live. One third earth gravity. We don't even know if human beings could, could be born over there. I mean, like, come on, let's not think about, about going to Mars yet. Uh, and then the idea about get to Mars is, oh, we'll extract those resources. No, we have to get, if we're going to invent something, closed loop materials economy, figure out how to use all the atoms of everything to recycle into something else. We're smart. We can figure that out. Figure out no more uh, inequality. Figure out how to get equal health care for other people and then have that be a basis. Like if we could just come up with a basis where human beings could thrive, then we could figure out all kinds of things. And, and The beautiful you know, maybe thing about what you just said is we are smart and we can figure this out. It would be just so much easier if we didn't have so much wind coming from the front, like so much yeah counter action by governments, by economics, even by religions, right? Like those three governing entities that are con mm. continuously uh, re-perpetuating the, the old, it's not to discriminate it, it is what it is, but it, it's, it's simply making the job of innovation a little harder because, I mean, it's also inspiring it to happen faster, that, that's for sure. Well, and I, I think you look at that like, um, you know, the old governmental systems, all religious systems, they, they, they're a static, static good you know like locking in like oh wow it's better if people don't kill each other than if they do so that's great religious tenant or oh wow it's great if people have rights right isn't it great that we have rights in in the western world and uh, democracies yeah it's great we have rights lock in that good but the the and then that system tends to protect itself um and again and protect itself against the di dynamic uh, energy and dynamic good in the world. And so when we're talking about these things, we're talking about massively disruptive dynamic good. Could it, could it, could there be, could there be cases in our experimentation where we actually end up lower at a lower state than we started? Yeah, there could be, we could, we could mess some things up. Um, and so I think there is a, a kind of a natural defense system against newness, against innovation. Uh, and I'm not saying that it, it's not even bad, but we have to at least get, like let's, I mean, uh, let's let's have some temporary autonomous zones. <laughs> like, let's. How about we make the the state of Colorado an, an autonomous zone and let us go try a bunch of stuff. If we mess it up, you can come and clean it up later. Whatever, anything. But like, but to say One that of the possible ways, right? Yeah. To say that innovation itself is the enemy, especially innovation on the level of of ownership of wealth of these kinds of things, the, the things that really threaten the ones that have won. You know that like you better be really clear about what for um and that's why they're again i think small makes better sense if we if we were to say hey look we're you know like we're going to overthrow the united states of america beep we're going to overthrow the united states of america and install a brand new system that's a high risk maneuver right it's highly risky for the whole planet but if i'd say hey look uh in carbondale i'm gonna we're gonna set up a, a collective that farms 
herbs and does vertical growing and has no salaries and group ownership and we're going to start a cryptocurrency so that that you know we can transfer our IP to anybody that involved we could like what's the risk I mean like really what's the risk and and then can we get can we get enough deregulation to try that now do that times you know a million projects and a million experiments there's going to be things that popcorn off they go whoa over there, that was 100 people two years ago. Now they're, you know, 15,000 people. And wow, all their health care is, like nobody has to worry about health care. And there's no, there's no coupling of my work and my income. And everybody, like education is going through this. And, and there's this cultural flourishing going of like, hey, maybe we should copy that one. And then the 15 that collapsed and didn't work out, maybe we shouldn't copy those. But they'll allow for that kind of, you know, like Silicon Valley-esque, uh, 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 you know, rapid prototyping and imagination space would be great as long as we're not doing it so that somebody else can get rich again and and monopolize on on the human ingenuity if we can keep it open we can keep it free we can trans tra uh, transfer one thing to the other then we can we can work our way up to these very very aspirational places like you know omni consideration or playing an infinite game or game b as jordan hall talks about you know like we can lever ourselves into those states through transitionary layers but we're not likely to do it like in a large system i know like i just i don't don't think we're going to invent the one cryptocurrency that's going to collapse the world economy and then substitute it for another one and all it's all going to be groovy and great uh, my guess is that, that like i say we'll go small and we'll go a lot of us will go small and we'll be agile and we'll think quickly and that's thank god there's so many people under the age of, of 28 right now they have less to lose right Less to lose. Less to lose is good. So interesting. In what you just shared, there, there are at least five or six hooks where I would love to have a longer conversation. We could talk for hours about that. But I'll, I'll let that rest for now because it was so inspiring and in, in positively intriguing. Um, I have another question for you, which kind yeah. of goes about the topic of trust, which is what we talked about. But I would just want to ask you personally, what is required for you to feel and experience trust? Uh, yeah, great question. I think um, uh, most of the way I, I view the, the world is around kind of what are our expressed behavioral values? What do we expressly say we care about in the world? In other words, through our actions, not, not, our, not our arguments or our politics or things like that, but how do we show up and, and demonstrate our care? Um, and, and so for me, I, I, I need to see that in the world. I need to see that with people I collaborate with, um, you know, that, that, that we've both, for example, for me to feel trust, I need to feel like I, I care about people and they care about me. Demonstration of care is really important. And so, you know, I think, I think in the past, you know, like ancient human had to be that, right? We had, you, you, you didn't want somebody in our tribe that was, you know, messing things up and hurting people. And you're like, you, you go on out, go, go join somebody else. We're going to stay here where it's all good. And I think through uh, our, our intermediation, of money, our intermediation of laws and and collective systems, we we sometimes lose track of the very basic uh, human need to relate and to be uh, having the same vision. Uh, and um, you know, uh, to uh, 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 you know, not to wax too too uh, emotional on it, but love. You know, like if if there's love present, then it's really easy to trust. Um, and. Really put, yeah. And and I think that that we make it really complicated with 
like how we're going to have trust in the future. Uh, that Dunbar number makes a lot of sense. Of 150 people, I can love and trust everybody because I know everybody. At, at millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people together, how do I know people? How do I trust them at the emotional body level and the spiritual body level? Well, I don't, I don't know anybody that's solved for that. If they do, please let me know. I'd, like to, I'd love to know how you get that level of things together. Um, and then how those groups of people interact. Maybe they interact. I mean, if you think about, uh, what is it, six degrees of separation type notion, if you stood in six separate communities and, and you were a, a go-between between communities, you could actually hold that kind of personal connection across groups. Um, and then if, if our economic system wasn't such that we're incentivized to do nasty things, to maximize our own wealth, if there was no incentivization for that kind of behavior, if our, our wealth status and our we're going to be taken care of on the planet was uh, not determined or not determined upon how we quote unquote negotiate and, and deal with each other, then we might have this this capacity to have a lot more of that kind of loving based trust. And I'm not I'm not arguing for utopia. Uh, I don't need us all running around in loyden cloths with flowers in our hair, but I do think that we I do think that that those of us who have the 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 experience of love as a basis of trust, um, you, you, you kind of know that it has a, an extraordinary value and an extraordinary feeling and experience. And if I had any ambition for all of humanity is that, that they would feel loved and that their, their gifts would be honored and given a place. Powerful. The gifts would be honored, right? And therefore we all have a place, a purposeful place. There's so many beautiful concepts you, you know, synthesized and put together in, in this, in the short hour we have together. Um, the question that really started the podcast relates funnily enough to something you mentioned earlier. So right now when we accumulate wealth, maybe two to three generations out, maybe that wealth is still around in our family and we can feel safe and secure. But even that is not guaranteed, and it's something that often doesn't happen because there is a repercussion to what the old generation uh, did, right? So what got me onto this quest was this notion of seven generations, which is a notion mm. in, in all indigenous cultures across the earth, not just in North America, this awareness that we are connected with the planet and with our own lineages. And so I've really been digging into that question, like what, what is a seven generational vision? What is a vision for 210 years? And so I want to ask you, because um, we probably don't have the three hours that th this, this answer uh, deserves, right? <laughs> but if you were to synthesize, what are the feeling points? And maybe what are some of the facts that in an emerging future we can already sense will be there in a, an earth vision of 2,229? Yeah, um, obviously we, you know, we speak in aspirational terms, you know, like what we would have for them. Um, and, and um, you know, I, I think of that point uh, and I think, wow, if I had uh, like one big aspiration for human humanity was that everything we touch is enriched before we're touching it. So that, you know, our interactions with our planet or planets maybe in, in that period of time is such that our present actually presence actually enriches those things, um, and and likewise for our personal relationships that our presence among other other human beings or other animal species or maybe even alien species that we're a benefit, uh, that we're a constant benefit to the environment that that we're in. Because if and if I think about that in big big glowing terms, like everything is every everybody's making a benefit to the the environment and the the communities around them. Now I no longer have to worry about my descendants. 
I don't have to think about my personal descendants. Like, what am I doing for seven generations of my family, people that are going to carry my DNA? Because it doesn't matter. If all human beings are taken care of and all the environment's taken care of, that means that any descendant I have, you know, from seven generations to a thousand generations will be taken care of. Because if it's all taken care of and it's all one thing, then we can, we can stop this silliness of winning out over one another. The silliness of saying, hey, as long as I take care of mine and mine, it's all going to be good. Yours might go off the edge of the cliff, but as long as mine and mine are good, that's, that's, that's enough for me. You know, that's, that's just the most short-sighted human um, expression I can think of. Um, and and maybe, we're maybe we have the luxury seven generations ago, they couldn't even think like this. They couldn't even have a concept like this. And so we owe it so much to seven generations ago to get us to the point where we have the, the, um, the resources, time, and intellectual depth of that time to, to imagine something much greater than what we have now. And so, um, you know, on that, on that spectrum, I'm just a person trying to make it go that direction. I'm just one of the people on the team called, hey, let's have human beings be uh, a net positive to the world and each other. And, um, and I feel honored to do that. I feel very, very proud and honored that, that I get to be uh, in a community of people that think that's important. Powerful. And as you are one of those in that team, you created the movie We Rise Up. And as you've created We, we Rise Up and it's about to get published, I just want to uh, let people know when will it come out how is it going to roll out? How can we watch it? How can we host watch parties, show it to our uh, groups, our Dunbar number, our, our corporation, uh, et cetera? Yeah. Um, so We Rise Up is um, uh, uh, going to have a premiere at Aspen Film Festival, I believe the 24th, 25th of this next month. Um, something like that. I, we, can, we can get that. End that of September. Yeah, yeah. Uh, end of September. And then um, we'll probably have a, a wide release early next year. You can go to weriseup.com and, and track things there on our Facebook page. Uh, we Rise Up the Movie is a great place to check out those. Um, uh, I will definitely link the trailer because the trailer al alone is already getting people excited to watch this movie. and Get the excitement of seeing what other people are thinking about and what, how they answer those questions for themselves. So we highly recommend that if you get a chance to see the movie, to see it with four or five friends, see it early enough in the evening that you have a chance to have a long conversation about it. Uh, the movie itself is, is not the point. Your experience of the movie and how you experience a shift in the way you see the world is the point. And so that's the thing we hope everybody shares the most. Beautiful. Is there anything else you want to point towards or make, make sure people don't miss? Yeah, if you're interested in uh, the futurists and other things, be sure and check out StoryWorks in the, the coming months. Um, we're, we're working on a book project about futurism and um, uh, likely to have a We Rise Up follow-up TV series, the Futurist TV series, be looking at all these things and support your uh, local storytellers and filmmakers who are trying to make the world a better place. Michael, Sean, thank you so much for being on the show. You're super welcome. Great being with you too. And that's that, another episode of Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast. I truly hope you had a good time listening to this interview and gained some form of new perspective, inside or knowledge that serves you, that enriches your life. And if that's the case, make sure to share this episode, subscribe to the podcast, follow the social media on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, and simply be part of the conversation. 
one step at a time. Wherever you are, have yourself a stellar day.